and welcome to the It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. I am John Evans. I am joined by Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek, my eternal, unredoubtable, if I'm not sure exactly what that word, indefatigable, how about that? My indefatigable co-hosts are with me as always, and today we're going to talk about Agnes of God, 1985 <laughs> classic. God damn it, John, you said that we could talk about everybody too. <laughs> Next week for sure, man, I promise, yes. You say that every week, John. <laughs> John, no. that's, I swear, that's fucking it i'm going to split off i'm going to start my own podcast and this is going to be about the airbud franchise and the early works of jason alexander and that's going to be it <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic man i am looking forward to it uh no of course today we are talking about friday the 13th 2009 the official reboot that we saw pretty recently and uh, that uh, that's a film that I, I believe we also saw together, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Vic, were you there? I was not. Uh, in fact, because I, I know that it played on, it opened on Friday the 13th, obviously. And uh, uh, I did not see it that weekend. I was, I was chastised by virtually every horror fan I knew. And I don't <laughs> remember what I was doing. But I'm sure that it was not an adequate excuse. I have no doubt that there was a woman involved in this scenario, and uh, that is why you did not go to the movie. Poor that is a distinct Vic. possibility. Poor <laughs> Vic. Uh, I, I actually have a little bit of a personal anecdote wrapped around uh, the seeing of this film because, uh, uh, John, you and me and a couple other people went to go see it at uh, was it the Bridgeport? Is that what's called? Uh, the one that was down by the Howard Hughes Center by the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was know. called that where something we, like that for a while. Where we did see uh, the Dark Knight together. Yes. yes. Oh, and I actually just rewatched that movie yesterday by a weird coincidence. But uh, anyways, yeah, and uh, I, I just purchased a motorcycle, which I had always wanted, and uh, I had not been riding it for uh, a very long period of time. <laughs> I'm just like, I will take the bike down to this show. That will be fun. And uh, so I ride it down, and we see the movie, and it's in February, as you may recall. And uh, so we leave, and I still don't have, like, proper motorcycle gear. I've got a helmet. I've got, like, an old bomber jacket. Uh, but I don't have gloves. I don't have anything. And uh, my cell phone, like, ran out of juice, and I wasn't able to call up GPS. So I just kind of had to kind of navigate myself by memory from this place that I had been to maybe three times in my life all the way back to Hollywood. And uh, I got lost mm. a lot. And super long story short, I probably got, I got like that movie let out at like 1230 a.m. I got home at like three in the morning, frozen oh to the fucking bone, dude. Like I walked in, I was an icicle, and uh, I like I wa- it, was, it was exactly like one of those where like you walk in the door, yank off your clothes, go in a hot shower, and just stand there and suffer for about an hour. So I, I have that hour of weird suffering uh, ingrained in the watching of the film, <laughs> which well, uh... which has nothing to do with the actual film itself. Just just the you know the the memory of the seeing of it. I remember I suffering a little bit myself. 
I was going to say there might be a correlation there, Mike. Yeah. That might there might not be two just just totally unrelated incidents. I don't know, but I, I mean, guys, I mean, ordinarily when we do these things, uh, you know, we kind of do a little kind of roundtable and go, you know, what's your general observation? What's your general feeling? Da 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 da. Guys, I, I, given that I've just uh, given you this, this little anecdote, let me lead off and say that uh, I remember enjoying this movie in the theater, and I, I recall that, like, unlike you guys. I actually wasn't so much of a Friday the 13th fan that like I had to absolutely see everyone no matter what. Like I actually jacked out of the, the, the franchise, so to speak, for a little while. Like uh, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, she's an ex I had actually never seen until we started doing this podcast. I, I After eight, I was done. I'm just like, this is I'm, – I'm filled up on this one. And so with a little bit of freshness, I was able to walk into the theater for the remake and keep an open mind. And I recall walking out of theater going, all right, that was fun. I didn't mind it. That was cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, in re-watching it now, five and a half, six years later, uh, I would say that I actually liked it a little bit more. And there were other aspects that uh, I was a little more forgiving in the theater that now that we've done this podcast, I liked some things a little bit more I and other things were a little bit more of a challenge to me. And I think that's directly correlation to having done this podcast. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like now you see things a little bit more from our perspective because, you know, you have approximated in your crash course that we've gone on over the last few months the same kind of fidelity to the series and love of the earlier films and appreciation of certain things that we brought to this experience back in 2009, or at least I did since Vic was too busy watching whatever was the equivalent of Downton Abbey back then. <laughs> Enchanted, John. We were, we were watching Enchanted every night. <laughs> well, I will say this for the film. Uh, Jason Alexander's performance is spot on. <laughs> I could actually think of a few, a few characters I wish had been played by Jason Alexander. <laughs> I think that the podcast definitely has colored the way that I approached it this time. And it's, I think largely to negative effect. Um, A lot of the characters, I mean, it it actually seemed as though they went back to other films and were like, let's use, you know, the, the dickhead host who's just afraid of people breaking his, you know, father's stuff um, from, from previous films. And what was really interesting, because you never think of the franchise as having a, uh, a particularly supernatural bent like once you know with the exception of of uh you know jason goes to hell once jason's back as zombie jason in part six like he's you know the, the, there's still no there's no spells there's no uh uh ghosts or anything like that and yet when we've talked about it up to this point We've done a good job of teasing out this kind of vaguely supernatural element, this this undercurrent of, of Crystal Lake and what that means, the role that it plays in this place is sort of this haunted, uh, you know, I, like I said, I keep thinking of, of Julius Caesar and the Ides of March and the, you know, lightning crashing and the, you know, the, this, this culmination of terrible things that brings Jason back. Um, it's, that has really been the most interesting thing for me that I have pulled out of this podcast. And thus it's, 
its absence was jarring in watching this. Um, I really, you can hear the studio know, you know, we want to do it. We want it to be more grounded, right? Like gritty and realistic and grounded. Uh, and they did that and it works. I mean, I think that if that's what you're going to do, you want to put a, a fresh take on it. Uh, but the problem to me is that Jason, a Friday the 13th movie without that undercurrent is really just wrong turn without any of the brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's fine. It's a, you know what I mean? You can make a well-executed film in that vein, but it didn't feel like anything I hadn't seen before. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. Maybe it's inter- It's an interesting way to approach a Friday the 13th film. It's not an interesting way to approach a horror film. Yeah, well, this is a Platinum Dunes production. I mean, I'll offer a little bit of um, context for the film, uh, as I usually do. So with this one, we are following the release of Freddy vs. Jason, which, as we talked about last time, did pretty well and there was a lot of rumors about what would be next and you know there was freddy versus jason versus ash was one of the ideas uh there was a quentin tarantino rumor that he was going to handle a reboot and there was even a thought that maybe they would do a crossover with halloween or with texas chainsaw or something like that and uh ultimately after the usual stops and starts and drafts that were thrown out um they ended up bringing back the same two guys that worked on freddy versus jason's screenplay they brought the whole crew basically the producers and director and dp of the texas chainsaw massacre remake which was also a platinum dunes production and those are the guys that ultimately gave us what we see here on the screen. And as you said, Vic, I mean, they they made the conscious decision to ground it a lot more and return to sort of the Jason that we saw in the first couple of films where he's perceived or presumed to be alive. And that's sort of the way that they, they go with it. The supernatural undertones are, yeah, you're right. I mean, they're completely absent in my mind from the film, other than one little odd thing that I want to obviously talk about that had to do with the sort of flash forward, uh, flashback open. And uh, we might as well get to that. I don't think I have anything else to say about the pre-production or whatever. So let's kind of start there. We begin with the past, you know, we are seeing 1980, the um, super on the screen helpfully tells us We've got a Pamela who's a little bit better looking, well, a lot better looking, quite a bit younger, obviously, than than Betsy Palmer, and or at least in L.A. shape. Uh, <laughs> in any case, she's a different sort of version of this character, and but she's still kind of got the same little speech that she's giving this other girl. You you didn't look after Jason, and he drowned, and you know you're going to pay, whatever. And so the girl, the terrified counselor, decapitates Pamela, and we see very clearly that this one has sort of taken elements that were used in in earlier films and just flat out said that Jason was watching this event happen. Now, let's kind of start there. I'm kind of confused about this myself. So Pamela's saying he, he drowned, he's dead. Like, whatever. The kid is right there, standing there. 
So, like, what the hell is going on here, guys? Um, maybe, Mike, give me a hand here. Like, what's your, what's your read on that, how it all went down? Well, I, I, the, those opening two scenes were interesting to me, and I gave them a lot of thought because, uh, uh, you know, the opening sequences, you know, I, I, you always want to start with uh, kind of a statement of intention. And uh, at the same time, you want to kind of introduce people who have heard of Friday the 13th movies but uh, might not be as uh, deeply versed in the mythology as, for instance, the three of us. You know, so it's like, and basically, they just want to go to the theater and see a scary movie on a Friday night. And uh, so we kind of want to give them kind of a, a thumbnail version of the mythology. Um, and in this case, like we open with, you know, that 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 past beat uh, with Betsy Palmer and she's chasing down the girl and she chops up her head and da 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 da. And while I was watching them, I was like, OK, this is actually kind of cool because as the three of us really well know, uh, we've spent a lot of time kind of lading. We've been doing these kind of logical, creative backflips, trying to figure out exactly how the mythology plugs in together. And every time, you know, we're like early cavemen. Every time we have kind of a hole in logic, we kind of plug it in with uh, magic, you know? So it's like, yeah, in the first one, it's like, oh, well, he died. But then uh, there's a zombie kid at the end of the first movie. And then in the second movie, he's, we, uh, wait a minute, he's not dead? He's just kind of a teenager in the woods and he's got a bag on his head and wow, how'd that happen? And we had actually kind of created amongst the three of us in this podcast, kind of this mythology that uh, the spirit, the evil death curse spirit of Crystal Lake had rebirthed him in some way. But what this one says is, yeah, uh, mom went nuts. Mom thought that Jason died. And she went nuts and killed everybody. And if there was some element that would have told us that uh, she was mistaken, that he had run off in the woods, uh, you know, something, then we could just kind of plug into it and go, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. But in this case, they kind of give us the one thing, which is uh, Jason, as a child, dies and mom goes insane and kills all the counselors and gets her head cut off by the final girl in the process. And then... Beat two, which is Jason actually survived, and now he's a crazy redneck in the woods. And uh, but yeah, I, I mean, this opening beat is done from his POV. Like the camera is actually like really low to the ground. I mean, it's it's almost reminiscent of um, Tommy Jarvis and uh, the opening of Part Five in a way. If we're gonna do like that kind of POV shot of like watching the horror and then cutting to how it affects him. We have the opening scene, and we watch it, and we go, okay, this is the mythology. We've explained it to the audience. We get it. But then we cut to the characters, and we have a character like kind of a dollar store, Rain Wilson, and his, uh, his MO is to, exp- is to kind of, again, kind of go back to uh, the mythology of, you know, this is a campfire tale that's gone bad. This is a campfire tale that actually turns out to be true. You know, and I'm never a huge fan of repeating exposition twice. Uh, and kind of the first one is visually, the second one is verbally, but it's kind of like, how do you lose one with the other? You know, uh, I'm not absolutely sure. But these two opening scenes are indicative of this entire movie in the sense that it looks cool and it looks like it solves a lot of the problems. But then actually, when you walk out of the theater and do a podcast about for about a year or so, and you really, really think about it, you go, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll agree before. Sorry, Vic. Um, I'll, I'll 
I'll agree that it, it looks good. I mean, the thing that I would say about this film from a technical standpoint is that it's extremely proficient as far as cinematography, set design, and all the little tchotchkes and curios and creepy dolls that populate all of the old houses and dilapidated barns and stuff in this movie. Props out to everybody in those departments because they did a nice job. Yeah, Platinum Dunes uh, does an... Uh, uh employs an excellent set designer. Yes. No, I was just going to say that I if you if you look at the opening the way that it plays, it's literally just a face value retelling of the first film. Or the, you know, or the, the the first two films. You know what I mean is the kid drowned, you know, mom killed somebody, kid came back to life or or maybe he never you know what I mean like it's We've looked at it, and again, because you have these elements that the girls dream in the first one, um, you know, this portent of the storm and all this kind of stuff, uh, there's enough there to to substantiate our reading of the film as there is some sort of supernatural element to it. This movie makes no claim, no, no subtext, there's nothing subtle to it. It's literally, this is what it looked like happened in the first one to me. The, the face value element really is like they watched it and were like, this is what it looked like. And they just, they just went from there. Right. Well, it, I, I, it, it does set the stage for so much of the creative decisions to follow in this movie. And, and it is just dopey as hell. I mean, like how can you have a woman avenging a dead kid when the dead kid is standing right next to her? And yeah. then, so he just like picks up the machete after her body goes down. It's like, okay, now I'm going to avenge her. It's just, Dumb as hell. Right. I, 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 the, the entire sequence presupposes that uh, this weird little kid never comes out of the woods and says, Mom, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Like the entire <laughs> film is predicated. I, it's like I, 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 in that sense, it's very much like a uh, 90s romantic comedy in which like everything is predicated on like one person just kind of never stating the obvious to another person. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, I'm actually a princess. Right. <laughs> you know, and like the kid obviously isn't necessarily the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, but you know, if he's dependent on his mom, I'm sorry, I'm not going to believe that he's not going to be running home to mommy. I just, of course. I don't buy it. Yeah. I mean, if he sees her and she's attacking some chick and she's got a machete, like he would go, go running out of the woods, you know? <laughs> Right. Uh, but I mean, now, he would run and like bury his face in her her leg, you know, or her dress, and cry, you know. Give like, her a just... fucking yeah, just give her a fucking mommy motor boat right there. Lots of snot and slobber flying uh, all over the place. Unless he's like, oh god, she's doing the machete thing again. I'd better stay <laughs> outside. <laughs> if, uh, if, if Pamela is nuts enough that uh, she's going to do this kind of shit, who knows what was going on before that? I mean, for all he knows, he's like, yeah. I mean, for all we know, he's like, yeah, mommy's having one of her episodes, and he's just going to sit in the woods and do nothing. This is guys. That's it. Jason faked his own death to get away from his mother. <laughs> Oh, dude. I, I, it doesn't quite line up with the uh, flashback scenes we saw in Hell and uh, Freddy vs. Jason, but uh, hey, it's a remake. It's a remake! Yeah. Right? Like like that time he pulled the, the drowning girl down into the water. Uh, right. 
Yeah, I, I, it is still, I, I, even though we've got a remake reboot, this is still a uh, film that kind of goes for surface image uh, rather than actually like really thinking through the actual beats of the mythology. It's like, hey, it's Friday the 13th movie. We're going to have this kind of shit. And uh, it didn't make any sense in 1980, and it doesn't make any sense now. And fuck you. Thanks for your 10 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've alluded to in the past, Mike, this sort of condescending attitude that that films have about their audience and about their own subject matter. And for me, I feel that with this. I mean, I, I think it's just a very dim bulb version of of this story. It it got rather tedious for me uh, at at different points. I mean, obviously there is some there's some big spikes of uh, coolness here and there. So, yeah, let's talk about this first group of um, teenagers, and they are sort of just camping for no reason, but two of them have an ulterior motive, which is to find some kind of pot field that they heard about, and they're going to steal some dude's crop, or I don't know what it is, but there are, in fact, some nice little pot leaves to be found around here. And uh, then there's this girl whose um, mother, I don't know if she's died of cancer at this point or... Not yet. Yeah, not yet. She she dies later, I guess. But she's... Our, our girl's taking a break from that or something. I'm not sure. Like, we get this sort yeah. of... She's a full-time caretaker for her mother. Yeah. And uh, she feel And in fact, uh, we get a couple of beats in which... She expresses her guilt for being away. Uh, she's taking a weekend off from being a caretaker for her cancer-ridden mother. Da, 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 da. And meanwhile, she um, has this brother that apparently when he was 17 just like took off because he didn't want to deal with this at all um, or right. something. Yeah. Yes, and uh, uh, then he will feel guilt about, hey, just like in uh, the remake of Evil Dead. Come to think yes. of it, almost exactly like the remake of Bill Dead, except uh, in this case, uh, she gets kidnapped by her antagonist instead of getting hooked on heroin. She doesn't get, <laughs> instead of getting hopped up on a horse, she just gets dragged off into a, little, a mine uh, by a backwoods we'll, psycho. We'll, we'll get to that for sure. I sure. definitely want to cover that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, these characters are mostly just sort of an amalgamation of various traits that we've seen in movies like this. You know, they're they're obnoxious and exaggerated to a point that it kind of brings up that idea we've discussed, which is like we're sort of getting ready to be ready when they die and, you know, not be too upset about it because they're they're all obnoxious in different ways other than, you know, our plucky final girl. And uh, I don't really have too much to say about all their banter and whatnot. Did you guys, did anything really jump out at you here? I really want to apologize. I, I pride myself on being able to keep the characters straight in my head and knowing all their names and, you know, making sure that we're able to uh, keep that, keep that part of the narrative set when we're doing this, which is not always easy. I will fuck up the names of all of these characters and which ones died how because there are so <laughs> many of them yeah. and I, I am unable to differentiate them by and large. Um, and it's the other thing, I mean, what I will, what I do think is interesting that I, I would be curious to get your, your guys take on is structurally, this is a really strange film uh, a little bit because if there's a shadow that looms over this to me, it's not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's Rob Zombie's Halloween. Um, mm. Now, whereas I, I think 
Zombies movie is is certainly a mixed bag, um, but he truly brought something interesting. He brought an idea to it that he said, I want to know more about Michael Myers, and that's what we're going to spend our time exploring. And so what he did was created a film that for 45 minutes was the origin of Michael Myers, and then for 45 minutes was a very truncated version of the first Halloween. Yes. Um, yes. Structurally, they've done something similar. They just have none of the interesting ideas behind it, where what they've done is is created a first act, because this opening scene goes on, I believe, for about 20, 25 minutes. Right. Um, yeah. That is a truncated. I mean, it's you know the you get the the cold open is you know a a thirty second version of the first Friday the Thirteenth. You get this opening twenty twenty five minute scene that is a condensed version of Halloween or of uh, Friday the Thirteenth two and three basically, um, and then you get into the movie proper. But the movie proper is only an hour long. Uh, it's it's very strange. I don't know. What do, what do you guys think about that? Well, I think that it. I don't really see the similarity to Halloween in the sense, again, that, as you said, there was a purpose to that. And and this is just like, basically, I would call it just an extended preamble um, set piece, you know, where we do introduce the girl who ultimately proves to be the more important girl than the one that we meet next, which is also sort of, I guess, a little bit different or surprising mm-hmm. with the way that that plays out. But uh, yeah, I mean, like we're we're just really milking the lead up. Uh, I don't think that there's a lot of insight into Jason given here. I mean, we do explore his space a bit more because yeah. in this one he's got the mine and he's also got a house. And we go into the house here where he grew up, and we literally see his childhood bed. Uh, where you know his name is helpfully inscribed into it, so that all the other kids don't uh, get confused and sleep in it. Apparently, and John, what is on that bed? What is on that bed? A teddy bear. Yes, there is. There is a teddy bear. There's a, ladies and gentlemen, there is a teddy bear on a bed labeled Jason. <laughs> yeah. uh, John, I just want to clarify. I didn't. The what the the similarity to me is the way that they played with the structure and a willingness to, again, to, to, to compress what would be the contents of a usual Friday the 13th movie into a smaller bit. Um, uh, like I said, so it's, yeah, it's, but it doesn't it's, feel like when you said it, it's like two and three, I mean, we've got the bag on the head, but you know, I don't even feel that it's tonally or, it's not different enough from the rest of the movie to sort of serve that function for me. What I, what I mean is that we do not meet our, our protagonist, like our, our presumptive protagonist. Like I agree that obviously Whitney is the the character that evolves into our final girl. She's just not on screen for, you know, the middle hour of the, of the film. And so we don't, we don't get our, our presumptive final girl, at least in terms of screen time in uh, uh, Danielle Pennebacher. Um, until 30, 35 minutes into the movie. I mean, and that's then we kill, and, and then we kill her because I, 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 this, this entire movie is, is kind of, it's, it's constructed of weird choices and like all of them have kind of a logic behind them, uh, including the, I, I, you know, I just alluded to like the, you know, the two, the two opening sequences, like both of them, I, I, I can understand 
the logic of the writing and the construction of them. Like I understand why I'm watching when I'm watching. Uh, and that's a huge leap beyond a lot of the Friday the 13th movies I've watched up until now. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I, I mean, they're also extremely arguable in terms of does it work or not. And I will have to say, like, I'll put this out as like kind of an overall thought that I had after I wrapped watching this movie. And that's that it is kind of, they have enough ideas for 50% of a movie and they repeat them all. So they have a hundred percent of a movie because if there's any one thing that I noticed about this film, it's they love to repeat themselves. If we see one thought or a character or a beat or a scene, we'll see a second version of it somewhere along the line. And that's how they get and that's how they get uh, half of a movie's worth of ideas to a feature-length film. Yeah, there there are many like even small iterations of this, like masturbation jokes. You know, like right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a repetitiveness to guys getting out magazines in this film. Just for example, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Vic, I mean, I think that I see what you're saying, and I think it's a interesting interpretation of what's going on but i guess like for me i just don't see enough actual intent with the film let alone success at the film to to say that that really registered too much with me you know to me it was more like i i get it i guess that it, it is ballsy uh to to keep danielle panabaker and jared padalecki off screen for that long but it you know it i just don't have a lot to say about it (laughs) it's 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 just different and the only the only real correlation i could come up with was not introducing the uh, scout taylor compton character in the Mm -hmm. in the zombie halloween until 45 minutes in you know not nothing earth shattering we're we're not coming (laughs) right no i i i think what we're seeing is an an effort to have more of a story going on than a bunch of kids show up at a remote place and they get hacked up by some weirdo. You know, if that makes sense. And, uh, and whether or not, you know, I, I, that story ultimately becomes filler or not is, you know, up to your interpretation. And I, I, I think that's kind of what we're seeing here is what they want to have is to have, uh, someone is searching for something. There's an arc, uh, you know, it's not just five kids show up and some weirdo chops them up in the end because we saw that back in the day. We have to give the audience more, man. We have to give them more story. We have to give them more character. So in this case, we're going to open with uh, uh, an opening teaser and then we're going to go right into basically like a, a truncated version of a whole Friday the 13th movie in which we have five or six characters and they get chopped up by Jason really fast. And I, and you know, this is not your father's Friday the 13th, you know, by plot point one. Now we get into the actual story. We've already chopped up a bunch of shit and now we're here. And I, uh, at the same time, it's, I, and again, it's also, it's also a statement of intention because we see how different, uh, or, or what this, film's version of Jason will be and his mythology. Well, and I would say this, there's a reading of this film that Jason is just a peaceful marijuana farmer who is trying to protect <laughs> from a bunch but, uh, of hopped up greedy 
stone teenagers. <laughs> right. I, 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 and it is interesting that multiple characters are, are led out to and lured by uh, this remote pot farm. And, uh, you know, it is the idea that it's like, you know, for if we're going to reboot this franchise, we have to give, you know, the people what they want. And it's like, I mean, if you're going to, I mean, most people haven't seen a whole lot of Friday the 13th movies, but they still kind of understand what it is. And still have to pay it off. So it's like, okay, there's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of tits. There's a lot of, if characters have sex and they die, uh, there's a lot of uh, people getting their limbs and heads chopped off, da, 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 da. So it's like, let's get into that shit without fucking around. You know, and and so it's like, it's a lot of overt sexuality. It's a lot of comedy. It's a lot of uh, R-rated violence. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a drug thing going on throughout. It's like, I mean, the first two characters, you know, we have uh, Dollar Store Ralph Macho is teaming up with Dollar Store Rain Wilson, and they're going to find this this drug field. And it actually pays off a little bit later on. Uh, and, and that's just a common theme in a horror movies by this point in time. Where like you know the, the the filmmakers and the writers was like, hey, the kids like with stoners in this movie, and we even saw a stoner kid in Friday, Friday versus Jason. I mean, it becomes like kind of a, a standard aspect of this film. Yeah. Well, of course they're getting stoned. What do you want, dude? And it's like I mean, you want the stoners watching Friday the Thirteenth at midnight going, yeah, bro. Yeah, they cycle through a lot of the standard tropes. Absolutely, they're gonna make yeah. sure that they shoehorn it in. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about Jason for a while. I think that this version of Jason uh, certainly does have some characteristics that his predecessors did not have. One being that he's he's sort of a woodsy survivalist, booby trapping kind of much more clever or at least cunning version. Again, kind of like um, when Vic brought up Wrong Turn. You know, he's sort of more like the backwoods hillbilly. Um, version of this character where he he it it opens up his mo a lot because he's got bear traps and he he they they make an effort to have him use every conceivable weapon in this film, including a bow and arrow, uh, which he uses uh, quite skillfully in this. So what what do you guys think about the sort of smarter, more practical the Jason who actually has like tools in his lair and sharpens his machete on a big wheel. I, again, I think that's one of the stronger points. I think this, their conception of Jason is one of the stronger points of the film, because by the time we get to this, we've been inundated with zombie Jason for so long. And we all talked about when we did parts uh, two and three in particular four a little less. So, um, but in parts two and three, how human Jason seemed, you know, in the scenes where he falls off the chair and, you know, and, and uh, uh, we actually see him running and stuff. And so a lot of that gave him a physicality that, that made him frightening. Uh, the scene in particular at the, the tail end of this opening when uh, Whitney is the, the last survivor and they, they want to lead you to believe that Jason's hacked her into pieces. He really kind of runs up to her and swings that, his his machete you know again just it, it's hard it's hard for me to find quite the right word but with an an intent uh a, a ferocity that he did not have he literally by the you know by part four i think you could really describe him as a killing machine and here you get the sense of someone who enjoys it maybe 
uh, or or you you get the sense of of a violent character underneath. It's the same thing when he throws the axe at. Um, uh, the, I'm just going to say the token black guy because I can't remember his name. No, um, the, the, the screenplay basically made him the token black guy, so we might as well just call him that anyway. I, I, like, I feel bad saying that, but it was like they were so conscious of it that they kept making mm-hmm. kept making jokes about it. Yeah, we'll get to that because I that really stuck up my fucking craw in a real way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I know exactly what we're talking about. Yes. Lawrence is the guy's name. Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not. I promise you, it's not racist. I don't remember any of their names. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I only know because I have that IMDb up right, right. in front of me. I but, should do that too. Here, let's do this. I have the. I have the. Uh, I have the. Uh, the Wikipedia page up, and it's just. It's not. That makes it less clear. Let's get professional. <laughs> let's get. Let's get fancy and actually pull up the IMDb page while talking about this movie. So, <laughs> so let's get back to the the killing here. Uh, Jason really takes out the first guy without a lot of ceremony or ingenuity, but there is a kill here that really stuck with me uh, when I saw it the first time didn't quite have the same impact this time, but it's still pretty damn good. And it's their version of the sleeping bag kill. And they do put a a new spin on the sleeping bag kill in this one. Um, He has her trapped in the sleeping bag, which she then dangles over a campfire. And she's being rushed to the hospital right now. If you can hear the sirens, she's she's going to be she's going to be just fine. Don't worry, everyone. <laughs> hold, for, hold for sound, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So she's like, we have these kind of weird cutaways to her inside the sleeping bag, and it's just a horrible thing to think about to be you know being roasted in a sleeping bag over a fire. So, you know, it kind of, they let her off the hook in the sense that she just kind of falls out of the bag at some point and she's, you know, she's kind of messed up and dead, but, um, it, it doesn't go on quite as long as my memory of it, uh, had it, but that one told me in the theater, I'm like, oh shit, you know, like this movie could, might, it might actually crack my sort of veneer of hardened horror connoisseur and freak me out. But uh, no, alas, it, it really didn't maintain that level of consistency. What did you guys think about this kill or the other kills in this sort of long preamble act one? Well, I actually dug when uh, Dollar Store Rain Wilson runs into Jason for the first time. And he's got the he's, he's bound his head. And it, like, I instantly thought of. You know, Vicky had brought up in an earlier podcast that, um, you know, Jason has like this weird vanity. Like he's going to cover his face because he knows that he's like a weird, ugly looking dude. And uh, but I, and it's, I mean, I've always loved kind of bag over the head, Jason. I've always loved that kind of like low tech, you know, thing going on, you know, that sure. kind of uh, and, uh, you know, he's got just like a, a rag bandage wrapped around his face. And like, uh, you know, just the dude is just like walking through the woods and he looks up and it's like, and his reaction is completely rational where he goes, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> it's like, and it's, uh, I actually really dug all that shit. And, uh, you know, there, there's a level of cruelty. Um, there's a bear trap involved and they roast the girl, you know, and he'll, I, I, I and, and even like in the earlier movies, like he couldn't just jump out of that guy and hack him up from behind. He has to present himself and create some fear and chase him down, you know. Um, and guys, I am going to make 
what may be a controversial statement, but given that I have watched all of these movies all in a row and thought very deeply and at length about them and done podcasts about them, I will say that this is my favorite Jason. Mm. Derek, Derek Mears is my favorite Jason. I think that he combines all of the most interesting aspects of this character into one. Uh, I saw all of the things that, that were kind of my favorite elements of other Jasons kind of smooshed together into Mears' performance. Um, I will say that I, I dug, you know, in, the, in these early scenes, we have kind of the, the stripped-down nature of him from two. Uh, but he also, Vic, like you brought up, he has a ferocity that we haven't seen since part four. I mean, this is a dude who's got to run at you and fuck you up. He's a tiger. He's a predator. He's a lion. If you run across him in the woods, he will fuck your shit right the fuck up. You know, he will run after you with a blade weapon and put it into your body and fuck you, you know, and he's going to have a whole lot of fun doing it. And if he gets the time, then he's going to fuck around with you even more, you know. But at the same time, we also get these, I mean, there's a physicality, but he's also got the size of the Jason from like say three and also from when he's uh, from when he's a zombie, but also later, uh, as you guys may recall there, we get some beats in which we get like a close up after he's gotten the mask on in which, um, we see, uh, yeah, there's, there's one kill where he's basically like strangling somebody to death. And, uh, we go close on that mask and we kind of see that the eye in which, uh, mirrors kind of narrows it in pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just, He's a giant, screwed up, mongoloid, mutant, backwoods, weirdo dude who loves to fucking kill people. <laughs> it's like There's an eye. There's definitely a narrowing of the eye or a shot of the eye that I thought was cool. And I, yeah, I think it is that scene where he's got the girl up in the bathroom in the house and then he ultimately does a silent night, deadly night kill and sticks her on some horns, antlers that were mounted on the wall right um but no, like but it's, dude, she it's dies like a... right away and uh the girl under the dock dies right away mm-hmm. one of the things that he likes to do like yeah he this one will moments like the the thing with the campfire and the sleeping bag like that is a degree of cruelty that if it was more consistent I would feel a little more like it's a definitive part of this character, but there are a lot of quick coup de gras in this film and sort of more just workmanlike, you know, going through the process of just systematically taking people out. But he does have that other um, strategic moment where when he's thrown the ax into Lawrence's back and he leaves him out there for a while, like, and one of the characters is like, he's just luring us in. And it, it does. Yeah. yeah. It does seem like that is kind of Jason's game there. And eventually when they don't come out, he just like walks over and finishes the dude off. And also this movie has like a weird sort of non approach to the tableau thing. Like he will move the bodies in this movie, but he never really tableaus it up. You know, they just like suddenly they're somewhere else. And, right. you know, I, I see I see what you like about him. And I do think I like what Derek Mears, like the choices that he made and his approach to the character. I like and I like the physicality and I like that this is like a, a Jason in great shape. I like that. And I like that he runs. But overall, because of sort of 
the vagueness at the script level and the inconsistencies of what he does. Um, I'm not entirely in agreement, but I, I see the argument uh, that this might be the most interesting Jason. Uh, what do you think, Vic? Well, I just I want to start this off by by sharing our weird Los Angeles anecdote of the day. When I purchased my current car, the car salesman and I were talking while they were running my credit, doing all that other shit. And I told him, you know, that I write horror films in my, uh, you know, on on the side a little bit. And he goes, really? Because I live down the street from Derek Mears. Wow. Let me see if I can get him on the phone. <laughs> so he called Derek Mears. <laughs> I was sitting in there. Got his, got his voicemail. But I heard the voicemail. You know, and he was like, hey, Derek, it's, you know, so-and-so. I just want to say, hey, I got this guy here, right to our films. Say hi, whatever. You know, but like, clearly, like this, is, this is also clearly like part of the car salesman shtick. Like, he's like, I can't believe how lucky I am uh, <laughs> that, I can, that I can call Derek Mears while I'm uh, uh, trying to sell the schmuck a car. Um, yeah, my friend Mark, our friend Mark, um, yeah. was just in a short film with Derek Mears. Really? Yeah. Rachel, uh, Rachel Drummond was actually on an improv troupe with Derek Maris. Oh. Uh, and, and it was not for that reason that we have like kind of this weird guy and we're, we're all kind of like mixing, you know, flop. You know, we're, we're all tadpoles flopping around in the same pond for this one. <laughs> uh, it's not for that reason. It's like I, I just as a, uh, a purely creative, you know, I, I just really like this Jason, man. I, I I I will say though that like in previous podcasts I have given the anecdote that uh you know I was walking down the street one day I looked up and there was a billboard and it had a hockey mask on and I thought it was well, no uh, Mike you've never said that on yeah show. Jason <laughs> I, I thought oh boy it's another Friday Thirteenth movie and it turned out to be L.A. Kings and I'm like ah you know but uh, then they actually did have a billboard for uh, this exact movie. I remember. <laughs> it's like, oh, it must be for the LA Kings. Oh no! It's it, it really is Friday the Thirteenth this time. Okay, great. Hey. So interesting little Hollywood trivia on this one that Daniel Pearl is the director of, of photography, and he is the same Daniel Pearl that shot the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the remake. Wow! Really? Yep. That's astonishing. Same guy. Yeah. So. Anyway, back to it. Uh, let's proceed. Uh, that sequence ends with the girl apparently being killed, but her intrepid brother is out there handing out posters and trying to find out a whole month later, it should be pointed out, because this will become important later, after her disappearance and everyone has disappeared. And apparently Mike's favorite Jason is also a excellent uh, crime scene cleaner because not a trace of evidence was left behind after this massacre. And nobody knows anything of what happened to all of these kids. So they're just assuming that they all ran off uh, with, you know, new significant others or whatever the case may be. But, uh, this group of partying, a second group of partying young people. I think we're, we've moved up from teenagers. Uh, we're all in our mid-20s, I think, with this, this film, or early 20s, you know, whatever. And uh, Jenna is among them, and we kind of think there's a little bit of sleight of hand that she's going to be our female lead, and she is for much of the film. She's sort of like the nice, compassionate 
uh, girlfriend of a not-so-nice and compassionate douche named Trent, who's played by the aptly named Travis Van Winkle. Yeah, I will say that uh, it is one of the weirdly most specific uh, actor-to-character namings that I've seen, which uh, if if you would use the actor's name, oh yeah, you would have... Uh, probably a better name for the character. I and mean, it's almost as if you had hired a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge <laughs> to play a dude named Grumpy Grandpa, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, like, Van Winkle just seems like the name of some East Coast, you know, blue blood family. Uh, you know he's on the road team. You know he's yeah, on the road team. Exactly. Exactly. And yes, that is exactly the character that Trent is. He's smug, he's entitled, he's rich, he's worried about material things. And he he immediately clashes with Clay Miller. That's Jared Padalecki, our, our male lead. And Jenna is compassionate about his plight, and they share a little bit of a moment. But ultimately, at this gas station, uh, they go their separate ways. And we have a, a new cabin, a very lush, rich person's cabin where these kids are going to be partying. And one of the guys is played by, Nolan is played by Ryan Hansen, a guy that I know well from a certain show called Party Down, which was huh. great fun. Jesus. Awesome. I, was, I was sure you were going to say Veronica Mars. But which is oh, yeah. but they're both Rob Thomas. I remember him from Veronica Mars. I haven't seen Party Down. Yeah, so. he's also on the League, uh, which is you know of 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 interest. He's a he's a good comedic actor. Definitely, I, I never saw Veronica Mars. Nothing, nothing to do here, but he's nope. he's a good actor. Nope, because his character runs off to the lake with this. Uh, you know, blonde bimbette and both of them seem kind of odious and they do go and have some fun water skiing, which was nice to have a Friday the 13th movie with some actual water sports in it on Crystal Lake. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and that was shot well. Inexplicably topless wakeboarding, but... Mm. Not inexplicably topless. She's in a Friday the 13th movie. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hey, she's a bimbet. Come on, like it's yeah, exactly. Come it's on. in character. It's like yeah, they're looking at there. It's like it's been thirty-four minutes since it's been at least fourteen minutes since we've seen Ted's. Come on, mm-hmm. um, you she know, does I, have I, a nice set. I, I, I did notice uh, as a really tiny side note. Uh, there's one shot that uh, Marcus Nisval seems to really enjoy, and that's the uh, the pullback. Uh, through yes. the body of a uh, of a vehicle, because yeah. in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he actually does it through the hole that's been punched through. I, I think it's Erica Learson's head. Yes. Um, no, and- no, it's uh, she survives a bit longer, but it's the hitchhiker that they pick up. She right. blows her brains out in the back seat of their Winnebago or whatever, yeah. and then we have this pretty awesome shot that yeah. tracks past all of these horrified faces, then through the hole in the girl's head and then back out of the vehicle to get the whole tableau. And, and that's just a reminder of kind of like, we, we shouldn't get into it because I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I greatly prefer that movie 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake to this one. And it's not because it's brilliant in any way, shape, or form, but I just think it it puts to use its style, like in a shot like that, in a way that's way more, it grabs me uh, in ways that nothing in this movie did. Right. I I, I, uh, I, I thought of that because, uh, you know, I, that was one of the shots that, Stuck out the most to me and, uh, you know, the remake of uh, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. And, uh, I, and so when he does kind of a similar pullback shot, uh, and, and I mean, in this case, it's, it's just like, yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty much just to kind of establish space and, and introduce us to a couple of characters. Um, I mean, it's, it doesn't have the same weight, but, uh, I mean, he does that. I'm just like, oh, he really likes this shot. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually. You know, just touching on, the theme of the fact that this movie kind of repeats everything that I mean, if something works or, or seems funny to the movie, it will inevitably get something that repeats it. And uh, in this case, we get two versions and uh, the first in the original group of characters, as you may recall, uh, uh, dollar store, Ralph Macchio kind of does like a weird little sex dance to let another girl know that he wants to fuck her. So while well, someone's while someone's back is turned and right. it's, well, well, it's well, so well. stupid yeah. because the first time the guy is looking at him. Like he's right. talking to him. Yeah. Right. No, I I I Dollar Store Rain Wilson is giving them some exposition. Yeah. And behind him, Dollar Store Ralph Macho is going, Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna fuck you. Yeah, I'm gonna get that, that, to the that. girlfriend. To the, yeah, to his exactly. Girlfriend. Yeah, who's listening to the exposition at the same time that she's kind of out of the corner of her eye watching the sex dance. And uh, you know, once is funny, once is okay. That's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I, I mean, we understand it's Friday the 13th movie, let's throw in a beat like that. Da, 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 da. Uh, and then, of course. As with almost everything in this film, we have to repeat that because yeah. when all the characters get uh, – we they arrive at the house, they pile out and we have uh, Dollar Store Owen Wilson kind of does the exact same thing behind um, another – Guys, I, I hate to do this, but this is, yeah. a, this is a moment of history. I just got a text from Amy that Wes Craven has died. Oh my god. I got the same text. What? Yes. Let's react to this live. Uh, wow. That's, that's really horrible. He's 76 years old. Um, definitely didn't see that coming. I wasn't aware that he had any health problems. I mean, obviously 76 is not 46, but uh, wow. He will definitely be missed. I thought we might see some more from him as far as new movies go. Obviously, like one of the greatest, the, the you know the conceivers of fantastic new ideas that we've ever had in the in the horror genre. Wow, I, I, I he's very much a filmmaker who I have never thought of in consideration with his age, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, I mean, there are some people like Ridley Scott or Clint Eastwood in which certainly George Romero. Right. And, but I, I, you know, people in which you're just like, wow, these guys are still working and they're like 80, you know? Uh, but whereas, uh, yeah. And shit, man, I never kind of thought, well, there's only so many more movies we're going to get on him. Yeah. And, uh, I always, it seems like it was brain cancer is what they're saying. 
Well, brain cancer will definitely do the trick. Yeah. And, uh, and that took my own mother. <laughs> Shit. How many directors of any kind, but horror directors in particular, have so many acts and chapters that they have enough to bring to the table that they have? Again, in the early going, he does Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. Um, and then I believe goes back to teaching for a while until he comes up with the Nightmare on Elm Street, launches the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and with the success of that, is able to do uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow and the People mm-hmm. on the Stairs and those sorts of things. You know, right. rides that along, and then in the '90s, completely changes the direction of the horror genre with Scream. Uh, Mike, we, we can certainly discuss whether that was to the the detriment. Uh, of the of the genre, but really, I mean, took the the, the whole genre in a different direction again. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, and the genre was relentless at that time, and I, I yeah, I, I, and there there's kind of a pro and a con as there is to any horror wave. But I, I he I, I, on multiple occasions, this guy has taken the entire genre by the rudder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look at the influence that Last House had, I mean, I don't know that we would have slasher films without Last House. Yeah. It it definitely laid the groundwork for Texas Chainsaw, you know? I don't know that that movie would exist if, if it hadn't proven to be so commercially successful, uh, Last House was, you know, um, on the independent circuit. Right. And... You know, then Nightmare obviously was a tremendous, tremendous imaginative landmark on the genre. Uh, and, and then, yeah, Scream made fun of the whole thing, but in a way that was, you know, say what you want. It, it, there was still a lot of genuine tension. And, you know, those are horror films. They're not like the Wayans family version of the genre. You know, right. they, they're legitimate entries and they have some you know really clever and nerve jangling stuff in there what whatever you think about the impact that they had and and we could you know we've talked about that before so it's uh it's it's definitely one of the most important people in this in this genre that top five yeah i mean yeah. that goes i i mean it's kind of like if carpenter dies you know yeah. I, I i we're talking about like top five top three names in terms of this and uh i guys i we're gonna get to that that place where like i and all these guys are gonna go away you know ridley yeah. scott john carpenter lemmy kilmister they're all i i and eventually you know the viking boat sails for us all yes. you know and a lot of these dudes are you know they've been around for a while and you know hopefully they're watching their health but at the same time you know we have to be cognizant that there's only so much work that any artist can give us. Yeah. Well, he gave us, Wes Craven gave us more than enough. So with a heavy heart, we will proceed back to this less than legendary film. Yeah. Especially uh, when I, we just did. Yeah. Fucking uh, Nightmare and Freddy versus Jason by a weird coincidence. So it's like, I, I there's kind of like, and, and the writers of this film came, like you said, came off of Freddy versus Jason. So it's like, I mean, it's, yeah, there's a Betsy weird... Palmer died while we were doing this show as well. That's right. Shit, man. I, I hope we're not. <laughs> I hope we're not giving away a death curse. A death curse. <laughs> what the fuck, man? 
It's like the final destination of podcasts. Yeah. So rest, rest in peace, Wes Craven. Thank you yeah. very much for everything that you have given us. Yeah. Well, so this film, by the way, was a New Line and Paramount co-production, at least to some degree. They needed to get sign-off from Paramount to go back and delve into some of these tropes that they're mining from the Paramount era. And obviously one of them is the bag on the head, which I did want to say. Um, it's a little bit different, as Mike said. Like, it's more like wrappings around his face. And it kind of evoked, like, I, I never saw this movie, but the box cover, um, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Yeah. kind of looks like the guy in that. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I could say that. I've actually seen that uh, on the big screen at the New Bev. And... Uh, God, man, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's cited, and I guess for a good reason, because it's uh, got its place in the genre, but I, I the original is actually kind of fucking terrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it was never, I mean, as much as a horror, as much of a horror geek as I've always been, somehow I never felt compelled to see it, but uh, it was even remade recently. Yeah, and I, I I actually have no particular drive to watch the remake because I I guess I'll eventually check the box in kind of the same way that like uh, it's like eh, okay fine I'll watch this movie and uh, then I watch a movie and I'm just like eh, yeah that's pretty yeah. bad not to get One, too far down the rabbit hole the remake sure. um, I actually saw very well shot uh, mm-hmm. the the movie itself is very meh. Um, but the director, uh, who came from American Horror Story, followed that up with Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is a wildly different sort of teen YA uh, uh, mm-hmm. drama that won uh, the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival. So Wow, I had no idea that those two were connected. That's well, amazing. Not for the directing, because I think right. it's well directed. Right, and, and similarly, I, I, I'm speaking of this film, I, I, I let me just kind of throw this out there. I, uh, I would say that this is probably the best shot Friday the Thirteenth movie. Sure, for me, uh, and, and uh, you know, and like uh, Texas Chainsaw, the set production is is brilliant. It's a gene. There's a real sense of like cool places. In this movie, like, but uh, I, I like the Texas even more, though. In yeah. that, like, I think the sense of place again, like, the reasons that I like that movie have nothing to do with the script, <laughs> right? But it's, I, I'm just saying, it's like, I, I, I dig, um, you know, something that was kind of you know picked up from Freddy versus Jason was uh, the idea of let's have set pieces at this kind of rotting rundown summer camp where we still have the cabins. They're empty and like something really terrible here happened a long time ago. And it's just been rotting since. So we still have like these stacks of canoes and all that shit. And it's like, yeah. hey, I, 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 I dig that stuff. Did it really, and, uh, did it really do anything for you? Like, I don't, I don't know that the film, like as much as I, I laud exactly the same thing you are, I don't feel like it's true cinematic atmosphere. Did you? I will tell you this: the one, the one of the details that really hit me is in the in the early going when when Whitney and her uh, uh, dollar boyfriend. store Adrian, what well, dollar store Adrian Grenier boyfriend, <laughs> uh, are are going through his house. They find um, uh, all the whistles hanging from the wall. There's like there's like yeah. six or seven of them, and it's you, you know if you were going to keep tally of how many camp counselors you've killed, right. <laughs> 
and just be all the whistles hanging from the wall. I thought that was actually really clever and interesting. I am glad uh, you brought that up. That that yeah. that I noticed that as well. Yeah, that was funny. It's like, I, I, and sometimes the I, and this movie will take an idea and kind of run with it, and other times it uh like the whistles, and, and other times it just kind of goes, well, we're gonna do this version, and uh, specifically I'm talking about um, uh, Pamela Voorhees's head, um, because in two he's got on a table with a cloth, and there and it's on a shrine, and it's surrounded by candles. And he's even got and uh, an earlier victim is dead next to it. You know, it, multiple, it's, it's, multiple. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it, and and so it's like, like it's really obviously a shrine to his dead mother. And in this one, uh, I mean, there's candles, but uh, they're just kind of piled up outside, a uh, hole in the wall. Well, not only that, it's in the bathroom, and and yeah. to me, it's like I'm like, oh, so Jason's been taking a lot of bubble baths with candlelight. That's yeah, that's, like, that's so cute. <laughs> I I I know. Uh, whereas in two, it's clear that he worships the memory of the psychotic woman, yeah. and he's following in her footsteps. And in this one, it's like, oh yeah, when he's taking a shit out in the backwoods, he just kind of lights a candle when <laughs> to get rid of the stench, <laughs> <laughs> and her head happens to be in this hole in the wall. And they make this choice because they want to give the audience this cheap fucking scare where they reach and go, wow, looks like a. There's a doll in there. Ah, it's a severed head. You know, so I, 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 there, there are things that I really like about this movie. That I think they're smarter than a lot of Friday the 13th movies that we've watched up until now. But there are other things that are kind of like, we're going to make it different. Well, why? Yeah, I don't know, dude. Good. I just want to say on this subject of atmosphere, like any given 30-second shot in part two where it's just the cameras moving – past the trees with the lake in the background and we're kind of creeping towards one of those camp buildings where the girl is spritzing her crotch or something and it's just like the music is going not the but just this little little moody jingle of piano keys like really subtle um I can't do it justice verbally, but that like had more atmosphere than any moment of this fucking movie. Oh, true. But I, and I will say that it's like, I mean, the wonderful thing about this franchise is it got so shitty that, uh, by the time that, that, that I, I mean, even like the, the, the new line films, I actually kind of vaguely despise mostly because it's like it, neither one of them had any real interest in Jason at all. It's like, I mean, Jason goes to hell. It's like, Let's make a movie without Jason. And it's like, and when he goes to space, it's like, let's make as least of a Friday the 13th movie as we can. Let's make Alien with Jason in it. Yeah. Right. And this one is at least going, let's make a Jason Voorhees movie. Well, yeah, we're back to basics here. Yeah. I mean, like, this is basically, like, I've been talking about the last several movies. We're, like, desperate to not have another part four, you know, where it's like, okay, here, let's just do part four all over again. Well, this movie basically is parts one through four smushed together and, you know, redone. Uh, uh, man, I actually kind of fucking dig that, man. I, I mm-hmm. Well, one of our fans on Reddit actually pointed out that I, when we did the podcast for Pop 4, uh, you know, he, he mentioned that, you know, for him it was his favorite because I mean, it was the most distilled 
version of this franchise where it's like yeah. it's nothing but motherfucking Jason. And that's, yeah, but when I said we would take one of these or, you know, let's say three of these movies to the desert island, that's why I would take part four, you know, mm. but I wouldn't take right. this one. Well, I also think this is this comes through the lens of Texas Chainsaw and the Hills Have Eyes remake and Wrong Turn. Well, but just like all those shots of them walking through and finding the whistles and finding the creepy dolls and finding the heads and I mean that's I've seen other versions of this down to the you know the creepy basement underneath with the people chained up in it. Um, yeah, a lot it, of that doesn't feel like Jason to me. It, I mean, it feels like the tail end of the the torture porn movement, right? And, yeah, and like it, I feel like a lot of what they brought to it, they're recycling from other Platinum Dunes remakes. Yeah, Over- yeah, I, I, I will say that uh, one of the most interesting things about not only this franchise but also doing a podcast devoted to this franchise is that the Friday the Thirteenth movies are so integral to the horror genre. That and and are so consistent that uh, they act as a very clear litmus as to where horror is from one generation to the next. And this is the movie that we get during the late aughts remake era. It's the same thing as with James Bond films reflecting where the action genre is at that time. Exactly. Holy fuck, dude. That is an extremely cogent statement. I, I, I think until we get James Bond versus Jason Voorhees. Well, that's funny because uh, remember it was part six that had Jason as Bond in the opening sequence. Mm. Look, I, Shit, I, that's I, right. Holy fuck. Yeah. I hate to say yeah. this. But look, guys, James Bond gets laid a lot. He's not getting out of the first act. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that brought something to mind watching this movie. Like, wouldn't it be great to have Jason like, here in the window of some house and there's like there's two kids studying or you know doing the right thing and he, he just goes oh, and turns around and walks away <laughs> yeah like he, he wanders into like some mormon community and yeah. he just kind of dejectedly keeps like peeking through windows and <laughs> kind of sitting there studying oh Ugh. no it, it would be really funny as if he does this slow clap you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're trying to kind of they're they're trying to do several things with this film and they're trying to kind of give us, um, you know, remake this kind of in the same tone and flavor as the other remakes that have come out within the the aughts. I, I, I those those, you know, basically where horror was for a while. It was like J horror and then it was remake horror and kind of intermingled with that was torture porn, you know, yeah. and uh, we, we saw that kind of thread its way through. Uh, you know, both the remakes and um, the only thing I got that was torture porny, porny here was the uh, burning sleeping bag scenario. Yeah, where it's like I, I have, it still kind of fits though because I this is a oh yeah, someone gets their leg caught in a trap. We're gonna linger on that and they and it hurts and it sucks. But at the same time, I it's kind of the same side beats that you get whenever you character with the leg in a bear trap. Yeah, one of the things that, that he repeated in this is uh, s- slamming a machete usually through boards, and there's a lot of that, and I thought it was quite effective in the house in the scene that you were talking about earlier where, you know, dollar store um, Adrian Grenier is uh, getting stabbed 
through the floor because Jason is under the house and he keeps stabbing through his feet and his arm and his leg and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. I like that. But then he does the exact same thing with the girl under the dock. And that's just sort of lame. Like, I'm like, first off, this girl could go anywhere. She knows where he is. She could swim across the lake. She could do whatever. But instead, she hides right under the dock where he is. And the one thing that I will give props to for that kill, that when he sticks the blade through the boards and into her head and lifts her up out of the water, well, I'll give credit two things because her boobs do look pretty good in this shot um, <laughs> so i guess it's it's i'm giving credit to three things actually yeah, uh whatever. but then yeah the fact that you get this very awesome foley uh you know thud of her head slamming up against the top of the boards when he lifts her back out so it, you know it's all right it's got some impact yeah, I do. I, I, there are quibbles to be had with that kill, but I will say that that was one of my favorite kills. And yeah. it is my personal favorite kill in this entire movie, and it's one of my favorite kills in the entire franchise. I fucking loved that kill. And what was it about it that you like? Was it the, the thump of the head or the preamble or what? I would say that I, I, the entire thing kind of comes together. I mean, I, 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 it becomes kind of a quintessence. Of what this movie and what this franchise is, in which uh, you know she's hiding under a dock, she sees him stomping around on top, she thinks that he's gone, we get a relief of breath, and then the machete comes down. I actually liked that the dock slats were a little bit separate, so uh, he didn't have to punch the wood, but uh, he slams it down through her head, and then he's he's got enough machete metal into her head that when he pulls it back up, her body lifts up out of the water. And uh, her head thuds up against the, the bottom of the dock, and that's how he removes the machete. And, and, and while he's pulling out the machete, due to gravity, her tits are exposed above the water. And it's like, it's like I'm like, yeah, I'm looking at that, and I'm like, that is Friday the 13th in a nutshell. You, you could show someone that five seconds and go, that's the movie. That's what these movies are. Her <laughs> eyes are kind of crossed in a sense. Like it's it's just yeah. the way that she yeah. plays it is just comical enough that it kind of makes it more of a you know a fun thing than a right. sadistic thing. Yeah. Right. And it's like I, why 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 did she swim under this one part? And, and like I don't even remember her swimming under the dock. I actually remember. I, yeah. It's like it kind of weirdly cuts from her getting clocked by the speedboat. And then she's just kind of under the dock. Oh, and... that's a cool shot, actually. Yeah. Where yeah. where she comes out of the water and sees him standing in the woods. Mm-hmm. Like, I like, there's just something really cool about, like, we've never seen that in one of these movies, but you feel like we should have. Where mm-hmm. there's somebody in the lake, and they're just staring and seeing Jason stare back at them from the woods that was really cool but then they have to give her a really stupid ass line you know she says something like really dumb like what do you want with me right like he hasn't even done anything at that point like she doesn't even she didn't even see what happened to her boyfriend who got an arrow through the head Uh, what do you think about this a lot of that kind of shit in this movie but yeah i agree it's a it's a really cool shot one of many really cool shots of jason actually um, and she's uh, – it's a fine scene. I agree. It's cut awkwardly. It seems like they have that interaction and then she goes underwater, I assume, and instead of going away from him, goes toward him, which seems counterintuitive. 
Yep, it's yep. a good kill. I liked I liked the um, uh, I liked the sleeping bag kill more, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even the guy, the guy getting stabbed through the floorboards, really sort of interesting the way Jason then rips through and sort of pulls him down. And, you know, it was almost like something out of Tremors or yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that. So I, it's 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 fun. I agree. It is evocative of the of the franchise as a whole because she was uh wakeboarding topless uh it's you know it's uh, it's fine i want to see the boat explode did we didn't we didn't see the boat explode right nope, nope, nope that's what nope. that's what was that's what was missing come on michael bay was involved in this production and they didn't blow up anything <laughs> come on although, although I, I i in terms i you know kind of circling back around to our one black character lawrence uh, the first two beats out we get out of this character is uh, they stop at the gas station in pure uh, cabin uh, cabin in the woods uh, mode. Uh, they stop they stop at the gas station to get some gas and some snacks, and he gets out and um, and Trent is like, "Hey, bro, do you want to fill it up?" And he's like, "Oh, because I'm the only black guy here." You know the the uh, the implication being that you know you're uh, the the arrogant. Uh, white Aryan dude is going to immediately ask the black guy to do menial tasks. And you go, okay, all right, I get it. It's a joke. And there's some tension between the characters and we're kind of establishing who these guys are and that, 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 that. And we get that. And, uh, but then the very next beat that we get out of four Lawrence is uh, when they actually arrive at the thing and he gets out and when the other, and the girl who we were just talking about, who uh, gets stabbed in the head, she's like, Oh, you know, la la. And he's like, yeah, I've got a big call coming in because, uh, you know, I'm setting up a, a, a music label. And she goes, oh, is it rap? And he goes, oh, why? Because I'm black. It's got to be rap. And she's like, oh, yeah, sorry. And he goes, yeah, it's actually rap. So it's like he, <laughs> he, I, I, he inverts the, the joke. You know, it basically takes the same joke and he inverts it. And that in and of itself is clever. But the fact of the matter is I, like so many Fucking other things in this movie. It's like we have one thing. Let's do it again. And and even if you invert it, it's still the same thing. And so we've got two beats out of this character, and both of them are purely because he's the black guy, you know. And after that, the only beats that we get out of him are that he's wacky stoner jerk off guy. Like there's nothing indicates his ethnicity from that point forward. Uh, and so I, though those jokes seem so fucking cheap and hollow and weird, you know, it seems so forced because at this point, the again, the cliche of the token black guy is so ingrained in us. Right. That they're like, well, we we still have to have a token black guy. Like we need to appeal to the African-American audience, um, but we're going to but we have to acknowledge it like we have to make something kind of jokey out of the fact that there's one black guy. You know what I mean? It's like, if you want to, if you want to do that, make one of the main characters, black. you know what I mean? Like, like make Trent black. You know what I mean? It doesn't, right. Instead, you're, you're going to give, you're going to, you're going to relegate him to this pathetic part, but, but you have to acknowledge that you're relegating him to this, to this pathetic, meaningless part. Right. Uh, and you, what, it's what's, actually what's, more offensive. Yeah, I, 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 what's most weird about that choice is that it's that we're talking about the most contemporary movie, if that makes sense. It's like, I, I, and with like older films, you could kind of go, well, you know, that was just kind of the times, you know what I mean? But in older movies, we have guys like Demon, we have guys like Creighton, 
You know, it's like we yeah. don't have token black guys in these movies. I, I know as much as much as the, yeah, like yeah. But, say what you want about the Friday the Thirteenth series. Like they've had some interesting black guys over the years. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like none, none, of, none of them have led forward on the foot of like. Oh, I'm the black guy. It's like I, I even like the kid from Five was. I, I, there was nothing about him that I, it was. It wasn't like oh, it was a black kid, right? It's like no. This 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 franchise has never played that fucking card until, ironically enough, the one that came out in 2009. Reckless. Reckless was also another character. That's all. Yeah, that's the character <laughs> that that he just referenced. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reckless was filled with racial cliches as far as his dialogue like it was a writer trying to give him street lingo it was really painful but i i think there's sometimes like on some level there's nothing more sad than a bunch of white people talking about like racial stuff i mean yeah. it's not really our our specialty i would say but i will say that this character ended up being a bit different than i expected because who the character ultimately turns out to be is sort of the undersexed stoner. That's actually who this character is. So, you know, I don't know that that's a problem in any way. I thought it was kind of interesting that that's who he ends up being. And let's talk about the two of them. It's the Asian guy and the black guy are in this film, the goofy stoners. And they're they're best friends apparently, and they do have a couple of good lines here and there, like kind of reminiscent of New Blood, where we had the writer guy and all of his fantastic weird stuff. We get one line that sort of evokes the the Friday the Thirteenth tradition of crazy random dialogue, where the Asian guy says. They don't call me the wood wizard because I masturbate a lot. <laughs> right, yeah, I, love, I, I love the wood wizard. I, I, I will say that, I, I, again, if we're going to talk about these films kind of, you know, like James Bond kind of dipping into where the horror franchises uh, genre is at any one point in time, this is a movie that no longer can, you know, settle for some 55-year-old dude in New York, journeyman in New York. Yeah, kind of figuring out what the kids are talking about these days. Uh, the long shadow of Joss Whedon is yeah. over this film, and kind of kind of the same way that the long shadow of the '90s is over uh, the previous two films in this franchise. And, you know, and so, and in this case, it's like in some ways, due to the fact that they are forced to up their game, I would say that some of the writing and the acting is some of the best that we've seen in this franchise. I, I and it doesn't go in quite so often. Gonzo, uh, I'm, I'm talking about dialogue when I'm talking about writing, but it's like I, I, we, we don't get quite so many of the Gonzo beats that we get from, like, say, four or seven outside of like the Wood Wizard is like a perfect example of when it actually does kind of spike up into that that territory. But uh, I mean, in terms of like just kind of flow. And, yeah. uh, you know, just, just uh, character right. personality and everything else. Like, like, it doesn't have that kind of corny stiffness that it's has, not, it's not is kind stiff. of endemic to this franchise. Yeah. Some, some of Trent and the, the sort of hate-like banter between Clay and Trent isn't, isn't bad, you know? Yeah. Like when those guys are sort of going verbally toe-to-toe. Oh, dude, uh, and I, I've got one more 
what might be a uh, another controversial statement. Uh-oh. And I, I like I like Trent way more than I like Clay in this movie. <laughs> I, I fucking love Trent in this movie. Uh, to, to my mind, he was uh, the the slightly evil version of uh, Paul from Two. Uh, That's yeah. like, I mean, don't forget that doesn't he just bail on his girlfriend to fuck Bree in the like in the middle of the movie and for no reason? No, wait, uh, Vic. Yeah, she bailed at him first to help Clay she, look at his missing sister. Well, he doesn't know that. Yeah, I mean, from his perspective, Jenna runs off with Clay and is gone for eight hours. And yes, Bree is dancing around being super hot. And he is just like one of my favorite things of this whole movie is how obsessed Trent is with Bree's tits. And like the cavalcade, the cavalcade of compliments that he gives her about her tits had me just like genuinely laughing out loud both times. Your, your 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 nipples are uh, perfectly <laughs> placed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 they're they're the kind of compliments that you get from like a guy who's like kind of really stiff and regimented in his mind, yeah. you know. And it's like, you're, well, yeah, he's so obsessed about the chair that Chewy, the Asian guy, breaks. Right, you know, right, right. But I, I will say that I somehow find myself not only la- – and, and like I actually remember that was actually one of my takeaway thoughts when I saw this in the theater back in 2009 was I'm like he should have been like a really one-note classic you know, douchebaggy kind of dude. But I remember like liking him weirdly enough. And when I rewatched this movie, like for me, he was actually one of the protagonists. I like Trent. How about anybody else in this movie? <laughs> oh boy, uh, Vic. Vic, Uh-oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that you disagree. <laughs> he was again from the the classic construction of characters you can't wait to see die. Right. Uh, they did such an amazing job that you immediately wonder what the fuck is Jenna doing with this douchebag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, douchebag Van Winkle. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was, I, I was just, I was ready for it. He, he, I suppose he gives a, he does give a, a good performance. Um, but his character, everything about his character seemed to me ripped from, I believe it's the new blood where they had the guy who's like, ah, not my, not my uncle's carpet. Like, wait, right, what do you, right. don't open this with that. Uh, it really felt like they just watched the franchise and were like, Hey, Let's bring that guy back. In uh, the opening scene, we, we get him, and they show up, and uh, and he's and she, uh, our, our girl, the girl who we think is going to be our final girl, says, "Why did you even invite everybody up if you were going to be like so anal about stuff?" And he goes, "Well, I just thought I would show my friends a good time, because within the context of his thought process, it's like when you invite your friends up to your parents's." place up for a good time that they're respectful of your shit you know what i mean mm-hmm. and I, I and when they start showing up and putting their feet on stuff and spilling stuff and breaking stuff i immediately start thinking of uh eddie murphy's beat in trading places when he gets the mansion and now he's got uh riches and nice things and he invites all of his friends from the hood and they just fucking shit on everything and he spends the entire beat. You remember Landis keeps the, the camera on Eddie Murphy throughout that entire scene. And he's just kind of going, hey, get your feet off the shit. 
don't put out your cigarettes and shit. Hey, man, you're spilling on the carpet, you know? And, like, yeah. we're on his side because we understand that. But we're not supposed to be on Trent's side, even though we're given the exact same set of beats. You see what I mean? Yeah. And then later, and this is key. This is key, guys. Later, when Chewie wanders off to the, the storage house to be wood wizard guy and to find the tools. <laughs> and, uh, and the direction is uh, interact with, with, with a bunch of props and uh, talk out loud to yourself and improv jokes and be a funny guy. And uh, he, in, in the course of that monologue, he, sta- he calls uh, Trent a douchebag like three times. Like he pull, pulls up in a thing. He's like, and he finds like some old whiskey and he's like, oh, I, I, now I know why I hang out with a douchebag like Trent. Glug, glug, glug. All right, douchebag. Da, 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 da. And it's, it's so fucking clear that these guys only, none, none of these people like him. They only hang out with him because he's a well off dude and they think that they can like hang out at a cool place and maybe like drink some good booze, you know? And I, I, I in all likelihood, that probably extends to his girlfriend who like when, Clay Miller shows up. She immediately bounces on the guy for like the entire day and gives him stack the entire time. And it's like, no fucking wonder he goes and fucks someone else. You know what I mean? It's like from his point of view, he is surrounded by ingrateful assholes who only like him for his money. And I, with a tweak, a tweak, my friends, we can make him the protagonist of this film. So there we go. Friday the 13th, the story of a, a misunderstood peaceful marijuana farmer <laughs> and, and a decent rich guy just searching, searching for friends who like him for who he is. Exactly. <laughs> this this yeah. is like – it could be Tucker and Dale versus Evil yeah. too. Yes, yeah. yes. I, 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 what, what keyed me off to you – know, the first beat that truly made me think, okay, maybe it's not just me is uh, when – he has kind of a shitty interaction with Clay or, you know, Jerry Pederecki and, and the, the redneck uh, thing in, in the storefront. Uh, and he goes, uh, he says something like, you know, uh, hey, bro, can you, uh, you know, let's just buy our gas and move on? And uh, Clay goes, hey, I'm not your bro. And uh, guys, for me, that's like one of the top three, like, douchey fucking ass things that you could ever say in your life you know i am just like i'm not your bro you know and it's like i immediately i was against clay and for trent and i spent the entire movie on that level <laughs> the movie kept telling me that i, I that i had to like cray and clay and not like trent and i spent the entire movie going no you're wrong <laughs> that's mike i think that's a that's a fair assessment i like it that's if only there's a there should be a version of this where Jason and Trent team up. Hell yeah, to, dude! To kill to kill all the you know where Trent's like, hey, why don't you? I, I thought I heard something in the boathouse. Like, why don't you go check that out? Right. Yeah, but I, I even kind of pays off like late in the film, in which uh, when Jason is like full on, they know that they're being attacked by this giant crazy mutant redneck, and, uh, and uh, Trent runs upstairs and grabs a gun. And the other, and the other two characters, it's Clay and Jenna. Jenna. Yeah, Clay and Jenna. It's like, oh my god, what are you doing with a gun in real life? You you don't have like this kind of squishy liberal response. It's like, no, 
I'm going to send this dude to hell with a 45 caliber stamp, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm going to put a clip in his dick. Clay is uh, alarmingly cowardly in that portion of the film. Like, it's kind of funny. Like, yeah. he, he, he doesn't have any weapons. He fucking I get sucks. It. He yeah. sucks. Well, we should we should we, talk about like there's uh, two main things that I definitely want to get to next, but one of them is that this is another iteration of the archetype that we have in these films that we often talk about, which is the Jason Hunter. Yeah. And we saw in I believe the first one was in part 4 and it was exactly the same setup where the guy is here looking for a previous victim. And so we have to add this guy to that that pantheon. And I think ultimately the way things work out for him make him the champion of them. But, like, there's that portion of the film there where all he wants to do is pace around in that living room and wait for the cops to get there. (laughs) Like, no matter what's going on with people outside. Yeah, the the irony, of course, is, like, he has kind of a staticky uh, scene with the local police officer. The cop is like, hey, man, we're doing all that we can. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to keep looking for my sister anyways. And then, you know, when the chips are down, who does he go crying to? Right off the bat, that same cop that was given stag to. By the way, that cop is the dollar store version of Titus Welliver. I, 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 in that sequence, it's like I, I up until then, I was kind of vaguely not liking Clay. And when the chips are down, I started actively disliking this guy uh, because I, he's yeah, totally it, ineffectual. Yeah. In that his, his response is, we could call the cop that I actually gave some shit to, man. And he's going to come and save my ass, even though I was mean to him in the earlier scene that I had with him. And then, like, uh, when Lawrence uh, is running and he gets a, an axe to the back. He somehow know, like you know, he goes, "Oh no, no, no!" Uh, the guy is just trying to lure us out by just wounding him, and there's no evidence to support that statement. There's only his cowardice. I... And, then, and then when Trent is like, "Fuck this! I'm gonna go get a gun," like any sane person in this situation would do. Uh, first, Jenna goes, "What are you doing with a gun?" And like they, they have the kind of you know liberal knee jerk reaction. And go, "Yeah, guns are scary." And then when he actually has a gun in his hand, uh, Clay goes, "Give me the gun, dude! Give me the gun!" For no reason. Like, what? What are you gonna do with the gun? That uh, this is my gun. It's mine. It's in my house. I'm going to defend it with my gun. Yeah, no. And, and I, I was deeply pleased when Trent just kind of uh, ignores him. When Clay goes, give me the gun, dude. And Trent goes, nah, nah. <laughs> I assumed that he knew Jason had just wounded him to lure them out because he had seen Full Metal Jacket. That was, <laughs> I don't know, that just popped into my head. I was like, oh, well, he's a Cooper fan. All right. Sniper 101. Yeah. Or he had flash forward in, 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 uh, in the future and seen Predators. Yeah. The question is, where did Jason get the idea? But that's, you know, we don't have to go down that road. I don't think it was an idea. It wasn't actually an idea. That's not what Jason was doing at all. It was just Clay being a fucking pussy about it. <laughs> By the way, when Jason throws that axe, it's pretty cool. Like the wind up that he does, you like, you know, that axe is going to fly along. Yeah. There. Oh, dude. Yeah. By the way, that was also dumb. Like the character of Lawrence is like he's afraid of masturbating with a stuffed animal head watching him, and then all of a sudden, like once 
he he's told that there's a, a killer out there and the power is out and his friend has gone to this shed he's like all i need is a pot a, a pan or whatever the hell that he takes right. i got this he's got supreme confidence and it's all actually even doubly like annoying that he has no reason to be confident and other than he kind of like escapes being killed instantly at the um at at the shed but they don't really even make anything out of that like you know it kind of reminds me in dog soldiers where there's that character spoon spoony mm-hmm. everyone's calling him mm-hmm. and like he just refuses to die you know and you just you love seeing that sort of triumph of of the human spirit that it takes so much to take this dude out it ends up being like a really cool beat for the guy even though of course the werewolves you know ultimately kill him but in this situation it doesn't pay off <laughs> there is no spin so the cop shows up and he immediately is dispatched through uh Jason stabbing a fireplace poker or something like that through his eye and through the door and this is my other big bone of contention about the last about this film in general is that the last third of this movie I literally fell asleep today watching it um because it it, like it becomes so tedious there's nothing to really root for oh and it actually starts with the lawrence character going out there we saw exactly what happened to his friend chewy um we saw like so there's no suspense at all about what he's gonna find and he has a fucking pot in his hand and it's like Obviously, Jason is just going to kill this guy. So dragging out any kind of suspense before Jason makes his move on him is just boring. And so there's that. And then we basically spend the rest of the movie with just a bunch of very mid-level, nondescript, run-around-and-hide-and-fight type shit with Clay and Jenna and Whitney. Oh, fuck, we totally skipped what's going on with Whitney, his sister, throughout this whole movie. And I, I, I have to say, it, it bugs the shit out of me. There's an earlier scene where we reveal that she has been Jason's prisoner and he has this network of tunnels under everything. And they literally acknowledge, the filmmakers, that they wanted to explain Jason's teleportation in this movie. So they're like, well, we're going to give him a network of tunnels. And that way, when he just pops up everywhere, you know, when the timing is perfect, and they exploit the shit out of that in this movie. Um, Well, it's the tunnels, man. So anyway, she's down there, and she's been a prisoner of his for 30 freaking days because she looks kind of like his mom. And which we get. And yeah, and and Dollar Store Adrian Grenier goes, um, hey, this this girl in this locket looks just like you. And she's like, oh, that's weird. And she just kind of keeps it. So the presumption is that Jason grabs her, does not kill her because he looks at the locket and goes, that's my mom. And then locks her into a, a, he chains a, a her tunnel. Up. He chains yeah. her up. Yeah. But here's the thing that I that stuck in my cry. And you know, this might be nitpicky on some level, but it just it really bugged me. So she's been down here for thirty days, and we have no reason to believe that he's done anything to her. 
Okay. Like the film doesn't, it could have implied that he was raping her. I mean, it wouldn't make sense with him thinking that she was his mom or whatever. Right. There's no implication that he's beat her or tortured her, done anything to her for 30 fucking days. And yet she reacts with this over the top. I'm not saying she's a bad actress, but she's just totally terrified of him just when he comes down the stairs. It's like, dude, he hasn't laid a finger on you. You know, like, why are you right. that scared? You know, all that shit does not work at fucking all. Vic, nope. do you want to uh, uh, lay in on this? I would say, I mean, she did witness what he did to uh, Dollar Store Adrian Grenier and... a month ago. <laughs> yeah, but that was, I'm just saying, that was pretty horrifying. Um, I, that so you're you're that still going to be shaken like a leaf? How do you? He's he's kidnapped her. Like, I, what you, is she going to be like? Oh God, this guy again. <laughs> I, I honestly believe that, like, if you look at the accounts of people that have been in a long-term captivity like that, there it settles into kind of an equilibrium of sorts. Well, and yeah. she would realize she had a degree of power over this guy's imagination if he's not hurting her. And in fact, that I, I, John, I, I absolutely agree. And and again, this this kind of leads into you know my my two main quibbles with this movie, and that and the one is the repetition, and the other one is is the fact that they'll they'll throw stuff on the screen they don't quite think it through. And no. in this case, uh, we we see an earlier beat in which Jason goes down his tunnels, and she's down there and she's chained up. And she's still alive. And go, oh shit, he didn't kill her. And she wasn't even unconscious. She's not even a bear. And she's just kind of chained up because he thinks that she's his mom or something like that. Or she reminds him enough of his mom that he's not going to kill her. He's just going to chain her up and figure out what to do with her, X, Y, Z. And there's even a beat within that in which, like, he crouches by her and she gets, you know, uh, she gets uh, tense. And she goes, Jason! And he's kind of snaps his head up. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, good. That works in the exact same way that the beat at the end of two works. But, but at the end of this film, uh, when uh, Hadalecki is about to get his due, uh, she shows up and does this and she plays the same card. Uh, And she goes, Jason, and plays the mom card. As but it doesn't work because she's already established. We've already established that she knows that he thinks that he's that she's his mom. Like she knows this stuff. Like it's, it, like at the end of two, it was like this tense thing that she kind of pulls together at like the last second. And it's organic, like that. She would just kind of like look around, and go, okay, the head, the sweater, the hairdo, da 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 da. Okay, now I get it. Boom, you know. Whereas in this movie, uh, it establishes the mom thing and then just kind of forgets about it. You know, they just kind of run around and she just doesn't get stabbed for a while. And they run around and they scream and they're scared and da-da-da-da-da. And then at the very end, she re- remember, remembers when basically the plot needs her to that, oh, yeah, right. I have this kind of mental control of this character. So she goes, Jason, and distracts him. And it's... A, it's a repetition of a beat, and B, it's no BSL. So there's it. I was much more bothered by the fact that Padalecki gets tossed around like a rag doll for much of this. There's a whole bit on top of the bus, whatever it is that they climb out of, 
where you kind of don't see what happens. And I just assumed that he was dead, but like, no, like Jason, you know, it was a little bit like with, is it Paul? I think in the second one, you know, that you get the, the, the final guy for lack of a better word who for some reason, Jason will wrestle with and maybe knock unconscious, but just isn't going to decapitate the way he would most other guys. Um, well, we've seen that in every single third act of these movies. I mean, I guess that's just another trope, which is suddenly Jason becomes non-lethal with the final guy and or the final girl and just starts like kind of roughhousing with him, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> or he just tosses him around like everything is just a pick you up and throw you like the Incredible Hulk on the TV show so that the Incredible Hulk on the TV show would never actually kill anyone. Um, and, and it's, it's really lame. And in this case, like when you're talking about with the bus, it looks like he's literally putting his face through one window after another. And yeah. he comes out of that with a, a couple of scratches on his face. Yeah. I, I, I will say that I actually really dug that bus. I, and again, it's like, I, in terms of like setting and, uh, uh production design, I, I love this shit, man. And it's like, I, I look, uh, you know, I look at like a, a, a an old, flipped over a school bus and I wonder how did that bus get flipped over, you know? And it just seems like a creepy fucking setting to me. It's like, I love that shit, man. It's like, if there's one thing that I, there, there are several things that this movie brings and the cycle brings, and that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I like the bus. Yeah. I think we can't even get to the end of this movie though, without talking about what happens to Trent. And I think on both sides of this uh, fence, like the two of us that, think of him as an odious character and the one that thinks he's uh, a hero. Um, He goes out in a really lame fucking way. Like whether you wanted him to get like a great kill that he deserves richly, like say what you want about Jason takes Manhattan upending that stuffed shirt professor into a barrel of toxic waste and drowning him in there was perfect to kill that guy. And instead, we just kind of get Trent impaled, uh, and, and he dies so quickly. It, and then we know that no one else is going to die if you, you know, don't expect Jenna to unexpectedly die. Um, it's just very disappointing on every level. Yeah, Vic, and you know, so you brought up something that I mean, this is like a really weirdly constructed movie when I, I and and that extends to how we manage our final girl uh, because we have. Basically, a girl who is important emotionally to our protagonist, and, and and the movie keeps alive, but she's not on screen for like you said about an hour. Uh, so, given a choice between the two of them, we have uh, you know the, the audience that, would go with Jenna. Yeah, the character the character of Jenna is like almost clearly, uh, definitively our final character, and I, I guess. The movie is trying to be edgy and go, hey, it's sort, of, can it's sort of Janet Lee. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hey, anybody can die, sort of. But we know that I mean, we can't just kind of have Jason capture Whitney Miller and have her like hanging around in that thing and then just kind of like murder her at random. Like we know that she's going to survive this. You know what I mean? But so it, I like, guess it wasn't like a, a fate accompli that all three of them couldn't survive you know like i i would have thought that all three of them survived so i guess it worked for me in the sense that it did shock me so i'll give it points for that i guess it i mean 
you're right in that obviously they were trying to subvert our expectations a little bit because there's such a formula to these movies and they generally adhere to it. Um, but I, it fails entirely because even if I was surprised that she died and I just didn't, I, well, it's worth pointing out. I was surprised that she died because I didn't remember it from the first time. And the reason I didn't remember <laughs> yeah. it the first time I saw it is because when it happened this time, I went, oh, huh. Well, that's interesting. They don't usually do that. And that was it because I didn't have any emotional investment in the girl. Like I would, if they, for instance, if they'd done this to Tina in part seven or uh, the, the girl in part six, whose name escapes me, you would remember, I would, that would have, that would have really meant something to me, but they've, they've invested so little in these characters and, and, and their relationships and stuff that, you know, the only to- things I remembered from this movie were the sleeping bag uh the weirdly enough the asian dude chewy uh riffing to himself in the cabin like i actually remember liking that the first time around um and the fact that funny guy is a a very funny actor yeah he's good and i remember that trent got a disappointing death and maybe a couple of other details here and there but I didn't remember much about this movie and it was only like five years ago. And I, other than one other thing, I remember being very bored with the last half an hour of this movie. And that was certainly the case the second time. Yeah, guys, I, I, I want to, yeah, I mean, not to be a negative Nelly, but I'd, I'd <laughs> like to, uh, I'd like to lean in on the one thing that kind of is, is kind of the toothache for me of this film. And that is the, uh, extraordinarily limp uh, approach it takes to Jason's uh, uh, finding his mask for the first time. Oh, uh, and and that, that seems to be endemic of these Platinum Doom remixes. Uh, they take like these really incredibly powerful story moments and make them as boring as fucking possible. And, Before uh, you even get there, like I'm so yeah, glad you came back yeah, to it because that was yes. the other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about. So yes. there is this um odious redneck character who's complaining about someone stealing his kerosene which is apparently jason mm-hmm. and jason returns to steal more kerosene it seems because that uh, not to get off onto a huge tangent but on the dvd the blu-ray there's this alternate version of the scene that mike is about to tell us about and in that version Jason trudges down the stairs with a kerosene can in each hand and catches the guy jerking off to a Hustler magazine with the hockey mask on. And Jason just drops the cans and comes up to him. The guy's like, hey, you want some weed, man? Chill out. And he just gets decapitated and Jason takes the mask, which is wow. equally lame. But yeah. they did it a different way. And then they decided to do reshoots. And then they did this. Yeah, yeah, it's like, well, I mean, that didn't work out. Let's do something just as fucking stupid, but but slightly different. Uh, in this case, we we have, I mean, when Clay is looking around for his sister, he's patting, he's driving around to these rural communities, these people in this rural community, he's passing out flyers, he's knocking on dusty screen doors, he's getting barked at by dogs, uh, and glared at by old ladies, uh, and uh, one of the guys that he talks to is this kind of red, rednecky dude who's working on a farm and he's got a um a wood chipper that's gonna you know play in later and um you know uh in this case the guy uh when he's not getting interrupted by clay miller 
uh, and he thinks that he's alone. What he does is he uh, hangs around in like this big, dusty, cluttered attic, and uh, and he uh, sexually molests a uh, mannequin. Is what he does with his time. Uh, when he's not was <laughs> blown a doom. Apparently, and, though, he forgets putting a uh, drop cloth on this mannequin because he's terrified to reveal the mannequin in his own right. fucking attic. Yeah, I, 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 which points to kind of the the dumbness in the entire sequence because it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, there's something, someone under that drop cloth, and he pulls it off, and he goes, oh, it's just you, Gina. It's like, what? what? <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, and then what happens is. Uh, Jason comes up behind this guy and kills him. And then after he kills him, there's the hockey mask and it's lying there on the floor and he puts it on. And uh, so it is, these filmmakers are given the opportunity to go, okay, this is one of the most iconic moments in horror as a genre ever. Jason Voorhees finds his mask for the first time. And what amazing fucking sequence do you give to that man and the filmmakers their response was we just got found on the floor and they put it out because he thought it looked cool see i looked at some special features and they said well we didn't see in part three exactly the moment where he found the, the mask so we wanted to we wanted to depict that and this is where these dim bulb screenwriters took yeah. it. I, 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 this, I, I, as much. I'm so sorry, screenwriters. I really yeah. am. I, I shouldn't. You know, who knows exactly why this went wrong? No, uh, obviously, I, you guys are a lot more talented than I am. Blah 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 blah. Uh, I, I will say, <laughs> I, 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 there, there's a lot to be said for this script, but this is not one of the highlights, man. And it's like, I, I it's like, I, the dialogue is like, like I said earlier, it's like the dialogue is way sharper than we ordinarily see in these films but it's like i when you're given the opportunity to be awesome it's like it's, it was just laying there and he just kind of put it on and it's like even as as much contempt as i have for shelly as a character in part three it still kind of plays as a scene it's still like a horror thing you know what i mean and you know what, Mike? I, I think you like you like alpha males and you don't like beta males oh dude i but i i <laughs> But at the same time, there's also the idea of uh, of replication because what we have here is a scene in which we have a secondary character wander around a cluttered space and they comedically riff on the props that they find and it ends with two things. Jason shows up behind them and kills them and there is a hockey-themed prop. And then we flash. That forward. was funny when the guy, yeah. um, when Chewie picks up the hockey stick and is like, "Hey, this is all you need to finish out your outfit." That's probably one of the first references to the fact that this dude is wearing a hockey thing since we've seen since eight. To be quite honest, I mean, after having seen all of these movies, I found this possibly, you know, one of the least enjoyable to watch. I just, I feel like I've been there and I've done that. Vic, what do you think about the the end of this film? I like its construction from sort of a, a physical standpoint where they set up the thing spinning and we get Jared's head almost gets in there. The bear trap on the back, I, the, the, all those pieces came together. And even I didn't Mike, I didn't, I didn't mind uh, the setup and then pay off of her 
using her her resemblance to Jason's mother to distract him in that moment. Again, not terribly original. Uh, I'm not imp- you know I'm not impressed by the the way they did it, but at least it was set up so that that's a low bar to get over. But I like to see uh, Friday the Thirteenth movies get over it. I would like to put a fucking moratorium on one-liners before you kill somebody. Uh, we've, uh, <laughs> we've used them all. Okay, we've used them all. Say when she to- literally says she's going to send him to hell, like yeah. just in this series, we've seen that. It just wasn't. It just. It just never works. Like it doesn't work when she yells "fuck you" before she kicks him. It's just. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. Um, and then uh, I think you run into the same thing with the the final scare. At this point, it's so. It's so cliched. It's so worked into the idea of the franchise that it was never going to work. And so to have your characters inexplicably roll his body down to the fucking lake um, just to set it up. I mean, that's you just have to let it go. I think you have to give up on it. Let's tell the audience uh, in case they're not familiar with uh, what actually happens in this film. After Jason gets his head fed into the thresher machine, and we see that you know he he's dealt a presumably mortal wound to the skull as it chews up the back end of his head. Uh, we then more or less very rapidly cut to a dock where on the lake where Clay and uh, his sister Whitney are sitting there, and Clay has a rolled up body which he pr- he proceeds to roll into the lake. And like, like, let's just stop there for a second. Like, whatever has happened here, and be that as it may that the cop was killed the second he got here, when did we just decide that we were going to handle the end of this? Like, whoa, let's not call the police. Let's not get the paramedics out here. Let's just, like, sweep this all under the rug now. Oh, don't even get me started on how stupid that is. But apparently, yeah, he decides to dispose of the body by dropping it in the lake. And instantly, like within 30 seconds of this body uh, hitting the bottom of, of the lake or the mask hitting the bottom of the lake, Jason puts the mask back on and busts out through the, the dock to attack Whitney in a carbon copy you know, uh, homage shot to the early films where Jason, you know, pops up or someone pops up out of the lake and grabs the protagonist from behind. So it's so fucking lame and it's not even time particularly well. I mean, it's surprising, but it's not like this is, you know, going to really work all that well on its own merits. Even if you haven't seen the previous films, it's such a cheap throwaway thing. That to me, it's truly the the cherry on top of this Sunday is a fucking turd. Hey, Vic, if, if you were a psycho killer and someone killed you at the end of your movie in which you just like murdered like a bunch of teenagers, what would be the one liner that the final girl would use? Oh boy, I should have studied up for this. <laughs> I, 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 maybe we pick it up next time after you think I, about you know, it for I a little just, bit. But I was, uh, I, I, when you brought that up, I was like. All right, I, 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 can I throw out a suggestion? Yes. All right, Vic, I guess you're not the best thing since sliced bread. Wheat. <laughs> yeah. I would, I, would, I would just have her say, insert clever one-liner here. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then uh, I like that. Yeah. You, you fucking even go out meta. What the fuck? This is why we disagree on screen, Mike. <laughs> but I will say, I will say, Mike, you have you have swayed me with uh, your defense of Trent, sir. I've I've thought about it during the course of this podcast, and you're right. He's he's not such a bad guy, and everybody else treats him like shit. He is no, a, he is a bad guy. I'm sorry. He's a he's a fucking tool. John, if we were to murder you, all right. So you, you've gone around and you've been a psychic killer and you just murdered like a bunch of uh, college girls, let's say, and uh, the final girl is about to kill you. What what is her one liner? <laughs> what is their one liner? Yeah, <laughs> she's about to like fucking set you on fire or something like that. <laughs> Or send you into like a mind shaft. What, what, what does she say? <laughs> so should it be playing on my name as well? <laughs> Either that or your or your mo. Uh, yeah. my I, mo. You yeah. remember at the end of Child's Play, it's like, you know, oh, but we're gonna be friends to the end, and the kid's like, not anymore. <laughs> you know I mean? you, you You've perved ever- out on your last girl. <laughs> I hope there's girls for you to perv out on in hell. <laughs> so I do have to say to say something good about this film. I had one more positive note. Remember in uh part 6 when Jason climbs out of the Winnebago on its side and he looks really cool? Yes. There is a shot like that in this film. And it might even be better, technically. Jason is standing on the roof of the house with this axe. And he's shot from below. And he's kind of half silhouette, even though you can see quite a bit of you know, detail. And he just looks really fucking cool. You know, It's a really good Jason hero shot, to use advertising terms. I think there's a, there's a fair bit of that. I mean, there are, again, it's, it's Marcus Nispel's overcut in a lot of places, which drives me crazy. Um, but there are some really good shots in it that I like. It's, it is not a film totally without merit. Um, I just think, I mean, if you had told me that I... <laughs> By the way, Vic, like, next release of this film, screenwriter Vikram Wheat says, not a film that is totally without merit. that's on the dvd yeah yeah uh well it might be the nicest thing they could find not totally without merit but if you told me that i was going to be longing for the character development in part three or part four i would have said you were crazy and yet here we are and uh the, the by truncating everything by cramming in 13 teenagers as cannon fodder uh, they 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 really they put themselves behind the eight ball. It's a, there's a lot of attractive people. There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of gore, and somehow the movie is less. Yep, I I totally agree with that, and I don't have too much else to say about it. I will say that I, I uh, at the end of a movie in which I've been murdering teenagers. At the end of it, the final girl will have a gun in her hand. I'll be like covered with cuts and bullets i've been exploded and shit you know i'm on my last legs i've got one hit point left i've got the nine inch dildo in my hands that i've been using as a murder (laughs) weapon this entire movie (laughs) i'd be like you and i we are very similar wait wait you have to say 
we're flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. We are very similar, you and I. And then she'll raise the gun and go, guess you screwed the pooch, cooch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go, no! <laughs> she takes this stick of dynamite and puts it in your mouth like a pacifier and goes, no! coochie, coochie, coo! And I go flying off a roof into a lake and then I explode. Gentlemen, I think we've been we've been talking about what to do uh, as we wrap up this Friday the Thirteenth podcast. I think our true calling may be to collaborate on the most meta horror film of all time <laughs> called "Screw the Pooch Cooch." Yeah, what the fuck, starring Mike Kuchak as a murderer with a nine-inch dildo. Yeah, I can't wait to hire the stunt guy who's got to fuck the dog sunscreen. And then in the sequel, the the dildo becomes ten inches, and then in the third one, it's twelve, and so on. As I gain levels. All right, well, Vic, you got bounce. I I think we've said as much as we're gonna say about this movie. Anyways, uh, uh, shout out to all the people who supported us on this podcast who have given us a spin. Thank you very much for uh, coming in. I mean, there's five fans, four fans. We love this movie. We ain't making shit money on this. I mean, we're just doing this because it's fucking fun, you know. So I mean, at the end of the day, uh, thanks for coming out and uh, giving us a listen. And uh, I think the next uh episode uh we're gonna try to have a special guest on and um at least after, one yeah and i think uh after that we might hit pause for a little while uh during the football season at least and we'll kind of take a break and figure out what this podcast is and the entire thing and uh you know what, what the next step might be but at the end of the day uh we will have one very solid episode of uh, it's always Friday the 13th in which we do our last Machete Awards. We kind of have a wrap-up of our thoughts about the entire franchise. And that's what we're going to do. Yes. All right. Looking forward to that. Yes, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank you guys for coming along on this journey. And I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.